Hello, everyone. Welcome to Energy Security Cubed, where we explore the pillars that form the nexus of energy security in Canada and the world, energy, economics, and the environment. I'm your host, CEO of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Kelly Hope. For today's episode, we have a recording from our webinar, The Russian Invasion of Ukraine, Implications for Canadian and Global Energy, which took place on Tuesday, March 1st. In this webinar, Ron Wallace moderates a discussion with Jack Mintz, Monica Gattinger, and Dennis McGonaghy on the war in Ukraine, its global energy implications, and the role of Canadian energy in reducing energy uncertainty and providing energy security. Hello, everyone. I'm Joe Kalnan, the Energy Security Forum Coordinator here at CGAI. And uh, thank you to everyone for joining us for a webinar on this pressing issue in Canadian and global energy security. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a devastating and unnecessary event, which has destroyed many of the assumptions underpinning global security. It will have a deep impact on the future of global politics and trade, most certainly in the trade of energy. The question we hope to answer with this webinar is, what role have Western energy policies played in the development of the crisis? And what are the implications for Canada in this uncertain global energy future? To moderate this discussion, I'm happy to introduce CGAI fellow Dr. Ron Wallace. Ron is an accomplished environmental scientist, manager, mediator, and regulator. He has international oil and gas regulatory experience in Russia with the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, and the EBRD, and retired in 2016 as a permanent member of the National Energy Board. Most recently, he chaired the Alberta Coal Policy Committee and has just authored an opinion piece, Global Energy Realities Confront Net Zero, featured on the CGAI website. Ron is joined by three esteemed panelists, Dr. Jack M. Mintz, Dr. Monica Gattinger, and Dennis McConaughey. Dr. Jack M. Mintz, OOC, is a President's Fellow at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. He is a board member at Imperial Oil and is chair of the Alberta Premier's Economic Recovery Council. Dr. Mintz has consulted widely with the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, and with federal and provincial Canadian governments. He joins us from Toronto, Ontario. Dr. Monica Gattinger is a CGAI fellow and the director of the Institute for Science, Society and Policy, full professor of political studies and chair of positive energy at the University of Ottawa. She is also a board member of the Clean Resource Innovation Network and a member of the Natural Resource Council's Research Center Advisory Board for the Energy, Mining and Environment Research Center. Dennis McConaughey is a CGAI fellow and former executive vice president of corporate development at TransCanada Corporation. He is currently principal at DOCE, Dialogues in Canadian Energy, and strategic advisor at Curve Solutions. He's currently a visiting fellow at the University of Western Ontario's Ivy Business School and an adjunct fellow at the Niskanen <laughs> Center. I will now turn over the rest of the webinar to Ron. Thank you to our panelists and to Ron for moderating this discussion. Take it away, Ron. Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining. As we say in Russia and in Ukraine, the first part of this discussion will be a conversation between myself and our panelists. We'll leave a 15-minute window at the end for a Q&A session. If you, think of, if you think of a question during the first part of the discussion, please enter it into the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. First, I'd like to start with a global interview to set the stage for our panelists. The situation in Europe, in, obviously in Ukraine, is very fast developing. 
Russia produces about 10 million barrels of oil a day and supplies Europe with nearly 40% of its natural gas imports and more than a quarter of its oil. Dependence on the country's energy supplies and fears of how a disruption to its exports may increase prices in the world markets make it difficult for other governments to impose sanctions on one of the biggest industries uh, in Europe. Gas prices in the EU already at record levels have soared more than 50% just last week alone. Western major oil companies, including BP, Shell, and ExxonMobil, have very significant investments in Russian hydrocarbon infrastructure projects. Currently, the US imports almost 600,000 barrels of oil per day from Russia. This makes America the single largest purchaser of Russian heavy oil production, consuming almost one fifth of Russia's heavy oil exports just in the first half of 2021 alone. Canadians may recall that the now abandoned XL pipeline that would have connected Canadian oil producers with the Southern US was rated to transport 830,000 barrels per day, which is just less, slightly less than what now arrives in the US by tanker from Russia. The turn of global interest towards energy security with associated strategic and military ramifications has been extremely dramatic. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has roiled markets from energy to metals to grains, and it has exerted inflationary pressures throughout the global economy. Announcements have arrived at a quickening pace. Several Chinese state-owned banks are restricting financing for purchases of Russian commodities, and now OPEC Plus imminently faces more challenges for future supply policies. Many now believe the demand destruction is going to be central to preventing oil from rising in price after additional curbs were placed on Russia. And banks raised one month of forecast for Brent to 115 US dollars a barrel in these risky markets, uh, trends which have been confirmed uh, as recently as this morning. With announcements that Western allies would disconnect specific Russian banks from the Society for Worldwide Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunications, or SWIFT, and cut off the Russian central bank from the global financial system, many predict that there will be significant ripple effects as banking sanctions make it difficult for Russian companies to sell their petroleum and other commodities. There is also an emerging question about whether Russia may now further choose to retaliate against the West by weaponizing energy and perhaps even turning off the taps. What short days ago was considered to be extreme theory has now become a distinct possibility. For instance, on Sunday, the BP board announced that it will exit its nearly 20% shareholding in Rosneft and that both BP nominated directors have resigned. Then on Monday, Shell did the same by exiting its partnerships with Gazprom. This has been followed by an announcement from Russia, which is set to prevent Western companies from exiting their percentages of Russian interests. These are examples of the fast developing changes underway as a result of Russia's military assault in Ukraine. And as sanctions are imposed from Russia, these developments based on Russia's attack on Ukraine 
has also highlighted significant holes in the Western energy security system. The Biden administration has pledged to limit the impact of Western sanctions on energy prices, while nonetheless continuing to import Russian crude oil. This contradiction is, is very dramatic. Also, while Nord Stream 2 pipeline has been formally sanctioned and is non-functional, Nord Stream 1 remains operating at full capacity into the EU. Quite astonishingly, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has pledged suddenly new support for liquefied gas terminals just days after shelving the $11 billion Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Italy said it could reopen some shuttered coal plants and is also considering importing more LNG from the US and other places. The events of the last few days and weeks have shown us that a responsible, forward-looking energy policy is not only crucial for our economy, but for our climate, but also for our security, Chancellor Schultz told the German parliament in Berlin on Sunday. Quotes, we will change course in order to overcome our import dependency on individual energy suppliers. This bold force is 180 degree change from what was in place in terms of defined climate objectives that were set in place only weeks, much less months ago. So what does all this mean for the West and particularly for Canada? So I'd like to turn now to our panel for some answers. My first question goes to Jack Mintz. Uh, and that is what further effects could Western sanctions have on the Russian energy industry and therefore on global energy supplies? Jack? Oh, thank you very much, uh, Ron. I think the, the first thing to understand with respect to what's happening vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Russian invasion of, of the Ukraine um, and the sanctions is that, uh, is that the impact of these sanctions on the ability of uh, companies to convert money uh, into Russian currency, uh, or for the Russian companies to get uh, money paid in, in Russian currency, of course, is uh, being impacted by, by these sanctions. Uh, it doesn't completely stop it, but uh, it does have an impact that, uh, that could uh, end up disrupting uh, Russian um, uh, supply uh, of energy uh, as part of the whole world market. Currently, uh, in the respect to oil, Russia accounts for roughly 10% of uh, world oil supply. Uh, in fact, it is one of the largest uh, producers of oil. And with respect to uh, the European Union, 25% uh, of its uh, imports uh, come from uh, Russia. Uh, and so uh, that's a fairly uh, significant uh, uh, effect. And we also know that natural gas that Russia exports almost half of it goes to Europe. And uh, Europe uh, currently, according to the latest numbers that I've seen, which were in 2021, um, relies on over 40% of its natural gas uh, from, uh, from Russia. Uh, so uh, the impact on uh, reducing Russian supply is, of course, going to impact heavily on Europe, but it's also going to impact on world supply, because right now world markets are pretty tight. Um, the total amount of world oil production is about 100,000 barrels per day. It's actually a little less than that right now, but it is expected to climb to about 100,000 by next year. However, uh, with respect to OPEC, um, most countries are actually below their quota. They don't have much excess capacity. In fact, neither does Russia have excess capacity. Uh, 
And in fact, the only two countries that have excess capacity right now are Saudi Arabia uh, and the United Arab Emirates. So if there is a reduction in Russian supply, uh, the question is whether OPEC will be willing to revise its quotas because right now, Saudi Arabia is not willing to start uh, increasing supply uh, if it's going to undermine uh, what has been a very effective coalition operating in, uh, in the past couple of years where people have kept to their quota uh, at, at OPEC. And so we'll have to see uh, what's going what, what's to happen. But uh, my expectation is that uh, certainly the price of oil is going to be significantly impacted in the short term um, as a result of any reductions uh, in, in, uh, in Russian supply. And of course, uh, reductions in natural gas will have a very significant impact on the price of natural gas in Europe, which has already uh, been happening as we've seen with the uh, increase in the Dutch price for natural gas. And we'll stop there. Well, well thank you, Jack. Uh, I'd like to move along now to our other panelists. In December, the European Union announced that it is planning to end all long-term contracts for Russian gas beyond 2049. Where things are currently headed, that timeline may be significantly shortened. What capacity does the European Union have to wean itself off Russian oil and gas in the medium term? I'd like to turn now to Dr. Gattinger. Monica, please. Great, uh, thanks Ron, and thanks very much to the CGEI for organizing this timely panel. Uh, I wanna just begin by um, uh, reiterating what we're all saying, which is that uh, this invasion is totally unacceptable and our hearts uh, all go out to the Ukrainian people. Taking a step back, uh, Ron, I think, you know, in, in energy markets, and Jack has done a terrific job of laying out the global context, in energy markets, as we know, uh, relatively little happens in the short term, a little bit more can happen in the medium term, and bigger things can happen in the long term, to put it quite to put it quite simply, um, I think what I want to draw attention to, though, is that in contrast to many energy security crises that we've seen to date, this one is happening in a particular context where the interface between energy security imperatives and climate imperatives are really going to be yielding or wielding some interesting political uh, dynamics. So all of this, I think it's important to note, is happening in the context of growing global alignment around net zero by 2050. Uh, people will remember uh, in spring of last year, the International Energy Agency released its report with a roadmap to net zero for the global energy industry or energy sector. Uh, seems a lot longer ago than, than, uh, than that, given the events uh, since that time. And you know, in that context, there has been tremendous movement and increasing alignment, not only between governments in the West, but also uh, between industry around the need to reduce emissions and drive towards net zero by, by 2050. So I think what's interesting to me about this is that for the European Union, and we are already seeing these debates beginning to emerge, is, you know, will Europe wean itself off Russian gas and replace it with something else? Or will it be attempting to remove um, dependence on oil and gas entirely? And I think, you know, of course, you know, the reality 
uh, is that uh, in the short term, one cannot make uh, fundamental changes like that to energy systems uh, on a dime, uh, even in the medium and the long term. I think any credible uh, roadmap or scenario like the IEA report really underscores that we're going to continue to need oil and gas uh, in uh, our energy systems for the decades to come. Uh, we're also, um, you know, certainly going to see those resources being part of a net zero future. Uh, you know, with uh, development of uh, and deployment of technologies like CCUS and the like. But I think to my mind, what's really significant about right now is that you see this debate emerging where on the one hand, you've got, you know, folks saying, look at what's happening, see how important oil and gas is and the importance of oil and gas to Europe. And there are maybe opportunities for new suppliers to, to move in. But on the other hand, you've got other folks saying, see how vulnerable we are uh, when it comes to, to uh, security uh, issues, when it comes to oil and gas, and what better time than now to replace them entirely uh, with other sources of energy. And I don't know if people in the audience are able to see Dennis McConaughey putting his hand, his, his head in his hands, and I agree with him uh, on that front. But I think this is where the debate around energy security and climate imperatives, this is sort of where we're at. And I think it'll be very interesting to see where um, Europe goes on this front and the kind of pressure that's going to be brought to bear politically to rather than replace with other sources of supply uh, to actually remove oil and gas from uh, from the energy system. So to my mind, Ron, medium term and long term, there are many open questions about where this might go and lots of, I think, important elements of this for Canada, which I know we'll be getting to uh, uh, in the remainder of our time today. Well, uh, thank you, uh, Monica. That's a remarkably accurate summation, I think, of the global situation. I would just add, I read a column yesterday that said energy security is directly proportional to national security. So that element is coming into the equation as well. And I thank you for highlighting that so very well. Uh, Jack, uh, did you have a follow-up comment uh, that you'd like to follow, please? Yeah, just, uh, just a, uh, a comment about this decade versus what happens in the future. Uh, First of all, uh, even in the very short term, uh, Europe is unable to completely replace uh, Russian gas at this time. Uh, it doesn't have the ter terminal set up uh, to take in enough LNG uh, that would be able to replace uh, Russian gas. So it's something that's just not possible now. And that goes to Monica's point about the importance of uh, technology and what's available to you. Uh, as far as what happens, uh, oh, and, and as we know for the rest of this decade, Oil and gas is still going to be of significant demand and, and will be a very important part, part of the overall supply equation for, for energy. Uh, it, we, we just can't simply jump into other technologies that are available. And in fact, the uh, International Energy Agency uh, has a very interesting uh, uh, analysis of, uh, of what technologies are available and not available uh, for, for the transition. And basically, uh, right now, uh, almost half of, uh, of what we need to replace would be technologies that are not yet known or commercial uh, at this point. And, and so uh, we're far away from having an immediate uh, shift uh, to other sources of energy. And I think this is where 
uh, I think where the debate will come in as far as what we particularly do this decade, it's very hard to know what's going to happen after 2030. In fact, who would have expected uh, this uh, huge issue to come uh, facing the world at this time? And I'm sure we won't be able to know what's going to happen after 2030 with any more accuracy, as there could be all sorts of disruptive things uh, that will push agendas in a, in a way that we, we don't even or recognize yet. Well, well, thank you, Jack. And uh, the right things are going. I'm not sure we could predict what's happening after 1230 today, but much less 2030. But th that's a very good comment. I'm now going to turn to uh, award-winning author and former senior oil executive, uh, Dennis McConaughey. The United States trade relationship has been sowing some serious cracks lately, but with the cancellation of Keystone XL pipeline and recent blockades and protests that have happened at key border crossings. Most Canadian energy trade is almost uh, totally restricted uh, to the United States because of our lack of uh, pipeline access to the East and West Coast. Dennis, what could Canada do to improve its ability to assist in global energy security crises and uh, providing energy to uh, the uh, world supply? Uh, th thank you, Ron, and thank you for having me as part of this. And uh, Kelly Ogle, this was uh, very well uh, timed and very much needed uh, in terms of just discussing the, these uh, obviously very dramatic events. In terms of being kind of a, as a tangible statement of what Canada could do, uh, obviously the capacity of the Canadian expansion of its oil sands sector, uh, at least over the rest of the decade, could potentially take the production levels uh, just from the oil sands itself, maybe up towards uh, 4 million barrels a day, which would be almost an extra million barrels, which would be kind of consistent with the kinds of forecasts we used to see when we saw this kind of, of um, oil pricing. That, of course, would require more infrastructure. And as you had earlier pointed out, if you had assumed that all the oil that was moving on Keystone XL was incremental production, that would have actually offset what the United States imports from uh, Russia today. So Canada can actually add about, in my judgment, about a million barrels of oil capacity into the world market, however that gets distributed. It's really more on LNG that I think the real question becomes whether Canada is prepared to perhaps seize the potential, not just to ensure that Coastal Gas Link and LNG Canada is built and operating, but that Canada seizes its potential uh, to probably add two more world-scale LNG facilities, whether that's twinning another capacity into Kitimat or uh, a Prince Rupert type arrangement. And that's not even beginning to think about the possibility of other gas sources in other parts of Canada going out on the east side. So, you know, Canada itself could contribute, in my judgment, up to three world-class uh, LNG facilities. Now, a point I would simply underscore, for that to happen, Canada will have to have a fundamental re-examination of its entire climate policy as it exists today. Uh, and that does actually mean reconsidering uh, zero net emissions. And, and I'm not one who really believes in that term. Uh, it really is decarbonization because you can't actually get to the levels of emission reductions unless you're basically decarbonizing the economy. I, I don't have enough faith in the broad applicability of CCS, let alone trying to imagine that the world has enough legitimate offsets 
to come anywhere close to that. Now, is Canada prepared to basically say on the basis of international security that it is going to be a net contributor to more hydrocarbon supply that the world will inescapably need? And I, and I would just make one other point. The, the, the world is going to three degrees C, whether people uh, had delusions that zero net emissions was actually where the world was going. Uh, the events of Glasgow, I think pretty much uh, any serious uh, review of what unfolded there would say that without commitments from China and India over the immediate term, we were never gonna get the kinds of emission reductions, even if the developed economies of Europe and North America met their pledges. So, you know, we're in an environment anyway where energy transition globally is not consistent with that, uh, with that view of the future. So I agree with Monica, there is a collision and it is right here and it's visceral in Canada between what we can do to improve international energy security and actual wealth creation within Canada and our continuing ambitions related to climate that, that quite frankly, I think are quite extreme. Well, well thank you, Dennis. Uh, Monica, you gave us a wonderful global uh, view there a moment ago. I'd like you to turn your attention now to talk specifically, if you would, about Canada and its role uh, in the global energy security crisis. Could you add some comments there, please? Yeah, I'll, I'd say three things um, that kind of add in, in, in some respects to Dennis's comments. I think the first is that Canada could and, and must, frankly, uh, develop its energy security policy capacity. We have very little energy security policy capacity uh, in this country. So, you know, start with the definition of energy security. I like the IEA's definition. It's kind of nice, uh, short, sweet, and, and, and clear. Um, you know, sources of energy that are uh, affordable and available and reliable, right? So it's about reliable, uh, affordable energy. And if you look, whether it's at the federal or provincial level, you say, okay, where would I go if I want to have a discussion about energy security? I'll be quite honest with you, Ron, I don't exactly know where you go. Um, there are probably little pockets. In fact, I know there are little pockets of, of expertise, uh, but nothing that really brings them together. And I think it's a credit to the CGAI to put together their energy security forum to deal with specifically these kinds of issues. Um, it's, it's an area that for Canada, we really need to build that capacity, both at the federal and the provincial level. So that'd be the first thing I'd say. Second thing I'd say, and this goes to the Canada-US relationship, I've got a paper coming out with the University of Michigan's Ford School of Public Policy looking at Canada-US energy relations over the course of the last uh, couple of decades. And, you know, it, it's striking how energy security has all but disappeared from that bilateral relationship. So even, you know, you look at the roadmap for a renewed Canada-US relationship, like find energy security in there. You can find it obliquely in a couple of uh, little places, but th this is really an area where we, we could and must uh, expand that bilateral agenda to be including uh, energy security. And I think, you know, one of Canada's main contributions to global energy security can be here at, at home, so to speak, in North America and strengthening North American uh, energy security and, and, you know, undertaking discussions with the United States around what can the two countries be doing together to strengthen uh, global energy security. Then the third area I'd point to is global relationships. So yes, there's trade and Dennis outlined a, a number 
number of um, you know examples there. I think it goes beyond uh, oil and gas, frankly, to looking at other uh, energy uh, uh, technologies, you know, uh, nuclear technologies and the like. It moves into the realm of science, technology, and innovation. Um, you know, the collaborations that can be undertaken globally uh, with uh, like-minded countries around science, technology, and innovation. And I often think of this under the rubric of like energy diplomacy. Canada can be a, an energy diplomat. We don't necessarily think about ourselves in those terms, but we've got lots, I think, uh, of expertise, uh, know-how to contribute to, to the globe on, on these issues. So those would be three areas, Ron, that, that I'd point to. Well, I can't wait to read that paper with the uh, U of M. It sounds <laughs> like it's going to be very, very, very timely. Uh, why don't you try and slip an advanced copy to Biden before his... Uh, State of the nation. <laughs> I would be delighted if you would read it. Let me tell you. <laughs> I'd like, I'd like, to, I'd like to turn to Jack. Jack, you're at the front lines uh, on many of these questions on several very significant boards, and as your role with the Alberta Economic Council, could you uh, just uh, add to Monica's thoughts there, please, for us? Well, I, I, I I've been uh, just want to kind of maybe add uh, uh, a couple of things that I think are are important here. Um, I think what's important is to recognize the Western alliance and global security uh, and what Canada's contribution is going to be. It's not just towards U.S. security, which is obviously critical to the Western uh, security, but it's, it's Western security in general. And in kind of following up on uh, what Dennis said, uh, the risk that we try to push too quickly on closing down uh, oil, gas, nuclear, um, and, and other sources of energy uh, that are available uh, at, that is cheap and reliable uh, could under, undermine or kneecap uh, Western economies. While at the same time, China and India, but particularly China, uh, has taken a longer term view of these things. And as a result, China is going to be taking more time uh, to get to uh, its objective, its net zero objective, and who knows what that's going to be, but certainly over this decade, they're planning to increase emissions, not reduce them. And uh, they will be able to use the money that they have been getting to invest in all sorts of new technologies, as well as buy up and control minerals around the world that are going to be needed for the uh, future net zero world, uh, where we will need not just rare earth metals, but we're going to need copper, we're going to need uh, nickel, uh, I can go through uh, lithium, uh, I can go through a number of them. And a lot of those reserves are sitting in Africa and in Latin America. Uh, lithium, for example, three countries control 70% or, or have 70% of lithium reserves in the world. Uh, and that's Bolivia, Argentina, and Chile. And of course, the countries that can invest in, the, in those reserves and get control of them uh, can also have a lot of control over, over the market share for them. And so I think the West really has to kind of figure out uh, how it's going to maintain its position relative to the rest of the world. And of course, Canada's contribution is in a lot of things, clean technologies, nuclear, uh, and and and. and obviously uh, things like hydrogen, et cetera, as well as oil and gas. So we really have to make up our minds what we can do to help the Western Alliance 
And, and I don't think we've really taken on a sufficient uh, position in terms of how we want to see the, ourselves with respect to the rest of the world. And so we need a sea change in Canada about how we think about foreign policy and how it connects to energy policy. Well, well thank you, Jack. And on that note, I am going to turn back to, to Dennis in a moment here, but I just want to add one thought to it is that uh, I recently saw a study that said if the United States wants to move to its net zero objective over the next 25 years, it will have to mine as much copper in that 25 years as been mined in all of previous history. Those are very serious thoughts that you've uh, touched on. And uh, it really brings uh, forward the whole question of, uh, as, you've, as you've said, this is much greater than just uh, oil and gas uh, ramifications that we're talking about here. It goes across uh, the whole swath of uh, metals and extending even into uh, grains and fertilizers that we are not talking about. Uh, this is kind of a, a bit of a, it, it may be the beginning of an upending of the uh, uh, global economy in some ways in terms of uh, trade relations. And on that note, uh, Dennis, I'd like to turn to you. According to an October Abacus dating po data poll, which maybe is outdated now as anything, two-thirds of Canadians want their government to put a higher emphasis on reducing emissions, and 51% of Canadians support measures to slow or stop oil and gas development. Dennis, what can you tell us what you think? What sort of challenge does this pose for a vision of Canada as a reliable source of energy among our Western allies in the future? Dennis, please. Well, I, I would just say this. When surveys like this are undertaken, when you don't contextualize that question as to how much are you actually willing to pay, because we have observed that when people actually have to pay more, whether that is in an absolute higher price or lack of reliability, then the whole question of what am I prepared to pay for climate change takes on a very different, uh, a very different characteristic. And, and we've, we've seen many occasions, especially in the United States, where certain states have actually voted on whether to impose carbon taxes on themselves and they've never been able to do so, Washington State being the most obvious example. So I, I basically dismiss a poll like that because it's meaningless outside of the context of are you willing to actually take on that $170 a ton where Canada is going if we're the only country in the world that has imposed that on itself? Are we prepared to impose those costs on ourselves for, in the name of climate change when in fact, as others have pointed out, there are so many free riders. My, my only point is that like the real question for Canada, I think in the immediate term is going to be, is it going to be part of a solution of increasing energy security? And you know, fundamentally Canada's role will be to increase its hydrocarbon production potential. Is it going to do that or is it going to uh, not do that akin to perhaps what, um, Joe Biden may try to also do in the United States tonight is say, I'm not really going to fundamentally change the direction of decarbonization as an, an objective in their economy, notwithstanding energy security. So I think that's the much more relevant question. So my own, in short, I, I think uh, those findings are largely overtaken by uh, current events. And actually, as always, 
what are people really willing to pay to reduce uh, carbon emissions or increase their fundamental energy costs? Well, thank you for that, Dennis. Monica, you've had, uh, you've touched on a number of these points. Could you add to that, please? Yeah, no, I, 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 uh, I think like Dennis, I'd want to push back a little bit on on those results. I mean, we've done quite a lot of public opinion polling over the last half a dozen years or so at at positive energy. And I think what matters, you know, it what what matters is trends. It's less, you know, response to a single question that can be informed by whatever happened that day. Um, so yes, we certainly see in our polling work, you know, an increasing appetite uh, around emissions reductions and, and climate action. Uh, but also what matters, and I couldn't agree more with Dennis on this one, what matters is trade-offs, right? So this paper that I've got coming out at University of Michigan is, is saying, you know, if you don't get energy security incorporated alongside climate imperatives, um, it's going to backfire because people care about reliable, affordable energy. And if you don't get that right, they're gonna push back uh, very strongly on emissions reductions. And we're already seeing this. I've seen some really excellent, if, if troubling polling coming out of uh, Britain, uh, where net zero and um, you know, costs associated with emissions reductions are increasingly being uh, framed and thought of as a poll tax. And we know that that brought down a government, right? So I think that the trade-offs is, is really crucial. Um, the other thing I would just point in terms of trends is oil and gas. You know, you, you pull around Canadian support for oil and gas development and it's majority support. Like, I mean, year after year we've done this, it's majority support. What we have noticed though, in terms of trends is a weakening of that support. And I think that should be something that we pay close, uh, close attention to. So we started asking some questions around, you know, what would increase your support for oil and gas development to try to get at what is in people's minds. And, you know, there is greater support from Canadians for oil and gas that is produced in an environmentally responsible fashion. So to me, this comes back to that intersection between energy security and climate imperatives, right? So yes, Canada is a reliable source of energy. I think that's, you know, empirically shown to be the case, but globally, is it a desirable source of energy. And that to me is where, you know, environmental, social and governance uh, indicators are, are going to become uh, really important. And I think where, you know, and, and I'd be a little, I take a slightly different tack than Dennis on this. I think it's less about either or on these issues and both and. Right. So it's yes, we can contribute to energy security at the same time. We can be working to bend that emissions curve, uh, that emissions curve downward. Um, and there, of course, there's also, you know, opportunities for collaboration with global partners, notably the United States around things like Article 6 uh, and, uh, you know, the international transfer of, of mitigation uh, outcomes for things like Dennis has been pointing to natural gas uh, exports and, and the like. So I think, you know, for Canada, this really comes back to this debate uh, around how is this energy security crisis going to be framed? Will it be framed as, you know, here's an opportunity for Canada to, to help contribute to global energy security? Or will it be framed as, um, you know, here's another reason why we should be getting off oil and gas and reducing oil and gas uh, production and consumption as rapidly uh, as possible. And I think somewhere in between there, this is why I would really advocate for a both and solution, not an either or solution. We know in Canada, we've tended to have quite polarized and superficial debates on these issues that have really not served uh, the country terribly well. Well, thank you. 
Monica, I noticed you used the term poll tax, <laughs> and uh, uh, that's a very, very interesting uh, uh, segue. I, I'd like to just turn for a comment to uh, one of Canada's preeminent tax experts, Jack. Could you uh, give us some thoughts on that, please? Well, I, I think uh, I think part of the problem, and, and I, I'm not sure uh, I totally agree with Monica on what she said in, in the last part, uh, because I think uh, having a discussion that somehow we can get off oil and gas as quickly as possible, I'm not sure what that means uh, and how quick that is going to be. And I think part of the problem is that the public really has not been uh, properly informed of the trade-offs. And I think they're, uh, I think Monica made uh, a very important point. And, and with respect to that, you know, estimates have been done how, how, how much it's going to cost to do the energy transition. And I've seen numbers, uh, you know, varying between, you know, uh, you know, like $140 trillion to $275 trillion. But, but no one really knows what the path is going to be to 2050. But if you take the $275 trillion estimate, uh, that's 7.5% of GDP on average every year between now and 2050. That's a huge cost. And the question is, who's going to pay for that? It, it's not going to come from nowhere. And that comes back to the poll tax, to answer your question, is that the public, I don't think, fully understands what the real cost is going to be and what it might mean in terms of higher energy prices. In fact, as one person mentioned in a, in a piece today, you know, that if we think, uh, which was... Uh, uh, Jorn Lomberg is that if we think energy prices have gone up now because of the uh, Ukrainian invasion, uh, you, know, by, you know, by Russia, uh, uh, wait until we get to, uh, to 2050. And there's some truth there. In order to get uh, to where we want to get to, it's going to cost money. And it's either going to be done through carbon taxation or it's going to be done through implicit taxes, poll taxes which forces up the price of energy. And that are things like clean fuel standards uh, and, and a host of other policies, uh, which is gonna make people pay more for what they will, uh, used to have. And, and so I think uh, there's a real reconciliation needed for people to understand that this is not going to be cheap moving to net zero. And they have to be, uh, understand it on that basis, which will lead to, a, a, I think, another debate which is to say, should we be investing in resiliency uh, where we can, where we're going to have to deal with climate change uh, and, and warmer climates in some ways, actually that could be positive because it could improve yields, agricultural yields in, in, in a country like ours. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, it will create a lot of disruption, uh, but there are ways of trying to deal with that disruption. Is that a better investment uh, than simply just trying to change or decarbonize uh, society. And I think that's going to be, that actually, I think, is potentially a, a bigger debate down the road. Ron, well, can I just jump you. in on, on something Jack said there? Uh, sure, uh, one minute. Yeah, no, su super quickly. I just wanted to clarify. Um, so, uh, in fact, what I was trying to say, Jack, maybe not terribly clearly, was that, that's ex that, that debating about, you know, uh, Canada being able to contribute to global energy security through oil and gas production versus Canada should get off oil and gas as quickly as possible. I'm saying that's exactly the wrong debate. 
to have. Um, that the debate we should be having is one that actually looks in an integrated fashion at not, you know, we often make climate policy and energy policy in silos. And what, what I think is really going to be crucial going forward is looking at an integrated approach that is solving, yes, for emissions reductions, but also for uh, energy imperatives like, uh, like energy security. And that I agree. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> well, 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 thank you. Well, remarkably, <clears throat> we're spot on time. And I'd like now, and thank you, panelists. Those are wonderful discussion. <clears throat> uh, I'd like now to turn to the question and answer session. First from Ian McConnell, Europe seems to have realized the reality, energy security and national security are linked. Europe is now saying nuclear natural gas are now classified as green. Does the panel believe this Ukrainian issue assists in the understanding the green transition is going to take decades, not just to 2030? Reality is starting to bite. Monica, I'd like to turn to you on that. You've, you've touched on those issues. Could you uh, respond to Ian, please? Well, listen, I, I think, you know, uh, I'll betray my own sense of this debate by saying, well, one, one would hope. Um, we'll, we'll see if that uh, turns out to, to, to be the case uh, or not. I, my own sense where reality bites the hardest is, is when uh, prices go high and uh, citizens and consumers point the finger straight at politicians. That tends to be when reality bites. Uh, and, and to my mind, a lot of this really does come down to making sure that we've got uh, you know, policy choices that are being informed by a fulsome understanding of uh, many of the issues we've been talking about here today, the energy security, affordability, reliability, uh, and investment requirements requirements of, uh, of reducing emissions. Um, that, that would be the hope. Uh, Ian, uh, we'll, see, uh, we'll see how things evolve. Well, thank you for that. Uh, Monica, I'd like to turn uh, Jennifer Turner's question to Jack. Further to Mr. Mintz's comments, read the risk of pushing forward too fast and undermining Western economies favoring countries like China. China is the conversion about transition to net zero and pacing related to the protection versus erosion of democracy? Boy, there's a mouthful. Uh, well, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting question. And I think, uh, you know, that would might be uh, some of the debate, uh, you know, that, that might go on uh, is whether uh, democratic countries are falling behind. Uh, I'm not sure that will be the case. Uh, I, think, uh, I think one of the things that uh, democratic countries have shown in the past is that uh, it, it may be messy getting there, but they can make changes that, uh, uh, that, that are required because the, because the population eventually agrees on, on, on what is the appropriate uh, step to be taken. Uh, an author authoritarian uh, country, as we've seen with Russia, can sometimes get stuck in the mud and, and try to push in a, a certain direction that uh, ultimately will fail, but it's very hard for a leader once they get into that rut uh, can, can shift. Uh, so all I'm saying is that I think we need to have our open debate in Canada and in other Western countries about the path going forward. Um, and I think it is an open debate and there's a lot of uncertainty uh, about that path. Uh, we don't really know it fully, but I think it's, it's healthier to have that kind of debate in society and an open debate and, and let people make up their minds and, and, and eventually support it. So um, we'll see what happens. But I think right now we do need more realism in terms of how we look at these issues. And I think 
this is, I think, the, the lesson from this past few weeks is that there's other things to energy policy besides the environment, as critical as it is, uh, and those can't be forgotten. Well, thanks, Jack. I'd like, uh, John Weeks has got a question here for Dennis. Do we not have a situation now where security, energy, and climate policies are intersecting? During the transition period to net zero, the world will find more energy, probably from coal. Obviously, this will be a disaster for the environment. To offset this, Canada should be looking at urgent steps to supply gas into the markets. It would be good for our national security, good for the environment, and a benefit to gas-producing regions in Canada. Dennis, can you respond to John? Uh, I entirely agree with the proposition that the more natural gas that is produced in Canada converted to LNG is a benefit both for Canada's economic circumstance and the world's position on um, reducing emissions to the extent that that natural gas is displacing coal consumption. And it is also the fact that it is being made in Canada, that LNG through across the entire value chain, you're gonna have more responsible environmental measures all across it from production, transmission and the liquefaction step. And as we've just been discussing today, it will improve global energy security if we define that coming from places that are actually consistent with the kind of the world order that we all want to uh, sustain. So I totally concur with him. I just point out for Canada to do that, it has to dispense with its delusions on its current climate targets and emission reduction targets, because you cannot increase natural gas production and convert it to LNG, given the way that people attribute the emission reduction to the place where the LNG is consumed, not where it's made, Canada will have uh, you know, increased emissions attributed to that. And that will be one of the collisions between uh, advancing a security interest, an economic interest, and still holding to the current way that we are thinking about dealing with climate. And to Monica's earlier point, you know, how energy and climate policy are integrated? Well, they're integrated by carbon pricing. But the question is, what is the carbon price? And again, Canada itself now has to come to terms with what carbon price are we going to impose on ourselves when the rest of the world may not have our ambition on carbon pricing? Thank you, uh, Dennis. I'd like to turn back to Monica now, who in Ottawa sits at the Policy Centre of Canada. Robert Skinner asks, by the beginning of the next heating season in Canada, there will be panels like this discussing energy poverty in Canada. What tools do governments in Canada have to deal with the growing price of household energy services, let alone the $10,000 to $50,000 cost of totally electrifying household services in the next 10, 9 to 19 years? Do we back, back off on the carbon tax lifeline price rebates in the tax system for poor households, what are the solutions? Monica, your thoughts for Robert, please. An easy question from Bob. Thanks, Bob. Um, well, I think, you know, certainly the energy poverty question and, and questions of equity, uh, you know, for the poorest Canadians, that's something that, uh, you know, we're going to have to be dealing with in in the years ahead uh, and, and likely through some sort of rebate uh, program directly on, uh, on energy service uh, bills but i would note ron that a lot of that does not come from ottawa but it comes from provincial governments so that's going to take provincial governments to to be on board uh on that uh on that front um i think though you know 
more generally, it's this isn't just about um, you know energy poverty for um, you know uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged Canadians. It's about how do we pay for emissions reductions writ large. And it goes back to I think Jack was making this this comment. We're recently working on some research where we've got the line of who pays when and how. Uh, and I think there's hugely open questions there, um, you know, and, and very challenging ones politically for governments, of course, because if you make things transparent, like a carbon tax does, people don't necessarily like that. If you hide those, uh, you know, costs from people through, uh, um, you know, some sort of rebate on an energy service bill, it's going through your general uh, tax revenue. If you hide it for a lengthy, lengthy period of time, I mean, Jack's on this panel, he could tell us more about this. Well, then, uh, you know, then you're just shouldering future generations with uh, with these challenges. And I think many of our governments are very shortly, if not already, uh, you know, hitting up against uh, the, their fiscal, uh, you know, the outside of their fiscal capacities. And will this come from the private sector? Right. I mean, what kind of an investment climate do we have here in Canada? Is the is the climate sufficiently, um, you know, attractive and and stable, uh, you know, for the kinds of investments that that we're going to need? And I think those are very open questions that need much more attention than they're getting at at present. Bob, uh, I'd love. Uh, we wish we were doing this in person. We could go out for a drink afterwards and chat about it. Well, thank you, Monica. Uh, Jack, I know that you have a pressing. Uh, commitment looming in about three minutes. Would you like to just add a comment uh, to Monica's thoughts there, please, before you depart? Yeah, I'll just uh, uh, add one thing more. I, you know, I agree with what Monica said. Uh, I think we forget about uh, the fact that a lot of climate policies lead to higher costs for businesses and not just for households. In fact, uh, if you look at the current rebate of the carbon tax, it's only, it's mainly the households. It's a little bit to small business, but it's very small. Um, but this raises, I think, a whole host of issues. First of all, uh, those costs end up getting passed through to consumers to a certain extent. And so as a result, uh, the, the progressiveness of the carbon tax is even more than we think. Uh, but also, we have to remember it has an impact on international competitiveness of our, of our businesses. And so governments are going to have to worry about that as well. And, and we know that uh, climate change, if the government ends up subsidizing a lot of things, whether it's electric vehicle purchases or whatever, that takes money out of the budget and somebody has to pay for that. And it's either gonna come through lower spending uh, by governments like on healthcare and education, uh, or it's gonna come through higher taxes uh, that they're going to have to levy uh, unless they feel that they can just run up deficits forever, uh, which we know can lead to inflation. So it's, you know, there's, there's big decisions that have to be made. Well, thanks, Jack. Well, that, I, I regret I didn't get to all the questions for those who submitted it. I apologize, but time, time is relentless and marches on. Uh, I want to just uh, say how pleased I am to have shared this session with such a wonderful panel. And uh, Kelly, I'm turning it back to you, please. Since uh... Kelly's still experiencing a few uh, technical difficulties. I'll uh, do the outro here. Thank you so much, Ron, for uh, helping put this together. Before we sign off, I want to thank Ron, uh, Jack, Monica, and Dennis for sharing their thoughts on this pressing issue. Um, the Canadian Global Affairs Institute is a unbiased, nonpartisan think tank and is Canada's most credible source of expertise on global affairs. Our mission is to identify Canadian global interests and promote more active and effective international involvement through rigorous strategic and policy analysis.
Given the events of the past week, this mission is more important than ever. Thank you to everybody for joining us on this webinar. Please get in touch with CGAI's staff if you are interested in partnering with us or sponsoring work on this issue or on other important topics. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Bye, all. Thanks very much. Bye for now. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Energy Security Cubed on the Canadian Global Affairs Podcast Network. You can find the CGAI Network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, give it a rating. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you like this episode and want to help us keep creating content, you can support us by donating at cgaica slash support. Energy Security Cubed is brought to you by our team at CGAI. Thanks go out to our producer, Joe Kalman, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Kelly Ogle. Thanks for joining us on Energy Security Cubed. Thank you.